Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. Welcome back everybody and thank you for joining us once again this week. I am delighted to say that this week's case has been recommended by Tracy via Patreon. Thank you so much Tracy, this is a particularly violent one which we'll get into in a moment. Before we do that, let's take a moment to thank our newest Patreon supporters. So I'm going to let you do the honours this week, Bethan. Thank you very much. Get back to the norm. Um, I do love saying the thank yous. A huge thank you to Greta, Maria McManara, Jason Clarkson, Andrea Lindenberg and Katie Palmer. And we also wanted to say a very special thank you to Sarah, whose husband Phil got in touch with us last week. So happy birthday, Sarah. We hope you have a fantastic day. This week's episode is not for the faint-hearted. It's going to be a tough listen and there are some really graphic descriptions of violence. Possibly the worst we've encountered, possibly not, I don't know, but it's definitely up there. Once again, we find ourselves in Manchester as we prepare to dive headlong into an unspeakably evil murder, which took place there in 1992. Suzanne Kappa was only 16 years old when she died. But while the circumstances surrounding her death were horrific, almost beyond belief, her murder was largely overshadowed in the press by the murder of two-year-old James Bolger, which happened just two months later. Oh wow, so this is that sort of time. And I mean, I'm not surprised it was overshadowed in the press, but it always makes me so sad when one case, I mean, I understand 100% why James Bolger's case would have more press time and more more airtime, but it always makes me sad when someone's case is overshadowed. Yeah, completely agree. Um, Even so, the heartbreaking events of 1992 shocked, saddened and frightened the nation. If ever there was a truly terrifying argument for the existence of evil in this world, this would surely be it. This week's harrowing tale begins on the freezing cold early morning of the 14th of December in 1992. A 30-year-old Stockport local named Barry Sutcliffe, I'm saying nothing, along with two of his colleagues was travelling along an isolated country road on his way to work. As he emerged around a corner, Barry spotted what appeared to be a naked young woman standing by the side of the road in the distance, desperately attempting to signal for help. Barry decided to slow the car down to see if the young woman needed any assistance. As the men got closer and the young woman by the side of the road came into view, the men in the car physically recoiled in complete horror in what they were seeing. The girl was a teenager, no older than 16. She was shaven-headed, completely naked, and she had apparently been burnt alive. Almost all of the skin on her body had been burnt away. Her hands were charred black and what was left of her feet resembled ash. Her face was so badly burned that it was described as featureless. The rest of her charred body was so badly burned that large portions of her flesh were hanging off in ribbon-like shreds. Her injuries were so horrific and extensive that all three of the men in the car wondered how on earth she was still alive, let alone able to stand up and flag down a car. Oh my god, this is... I mean, I know this case and I know this already and yet hearing you say that it just makes your blood run cold i just the the cruelty of some humans is just maddening but how like you said how she's even able to stand and flag down a car and that strength to kind of keep going it's incredible i i I, yeah i thought about the same i think it must it must have just come from the sheer adrenaline racing through her and that absolute fight to survive yeah So Barry Sutcliffe jumped out of his car to help the poor girl and she was freezing cold, terrified and clearly in a state of shock and confusion. 
The first thing she said to Barry was, they've burned me. The girl was helped into the car and the men rushed her to a nearby house where they roused the two elderly occupants who immediately called for emergency help. As they waited anxiously for an ambulance to arrive, the girl, who kept slipping in and out of consciousness, intermittently told Barry the basics of what had happened to her. She identified herself as Susan Capper. She was just 16 years old. She said that she'd been kidnapped and held in a flat for almost a week, although she couldn't remember exactly where the flat was. She said she'd been brutally tortured and injected with drugs. Finally, she'd been driven to a remote spot by her tormentors, who'd then doused her in petrol before setting her on fire and leaving her for dead. By some miracle, Suzanne had survived this ordeal. However, what her helpers did not know at that moment was that her body was in the process of shutting down. Her charred flesh was no longer able to retain the fluids in her body, and she was dehydrating so rapidly that her organs were beginning to fail. Before long, she would go into shock. She was dying right in front of their eyes. Despite this, her helpers were struck by how overtly kind and polite the girl was, even despite the unspeakable agony and fear she must have been experiencing at that very moment. She incessantly thanked them for helping her and even managed to smile occasionally when she was being spoken to. Speaking later to the media, the occupants of the house, Michael and Margaret Coop, both recalled their experience with Suzanne. Michael Coop said, Both her hands appeared like ash, her legs were just like raw meat and her feet appeared to be badly charred. I was struck by how polite she was. She was constantly thanking my wife for her assistance. Recalling her experience, Margaret Coop said, I instinctively went to put my arms around her but she pulled away because she could not bear to be touched. Her head was shaved and there were recent, not new, cuts to her head. Her face was almost featureless. Her hands were red raw and black at the fingertips. Her legs were red from top to bottom. She couldn't bear anything near her legs. Desperately thirsty due to the severe dehydration, Suzanne drank six glasses of water, but she was unable to hold the glass herself because of the injuries to her hands. She could only drink with Margaret's assistance. It kind of reminds me, sorry to interrupt, but um, with Evelyn Foster, and it was an episode that I recorded on my own, so I don't know if you ever listened to that, but she'd been set um, on fire in her car. And I do remember, yeah. Her then taking all the last ounces of her energy before she died to give her statement of what had happened to her and that sort of thing. And it's it's just awful. You know, she's there trying to drink water. She's trying to to survive. She's just doing everything she can. Oh, it's just horrible. And I can't I can't imagine what it was like for Barry Sutcliffe and his two colleagues and then Margaret. Coop and and her husband Mike as well to just be sat there with her because I think she'd have been naked as well throughout this whole time that she was waiting for the ambulance in their house because she wouldn't have bared to be able to have any clothes or any blankets over her and they must have just known that yeah she was dying before their very eyes and it would have just been a, a totally helpless feeling that they would have had. The ambulance soon arrived and Suzanne was rushed to the emergency burns unit at Withington Hospital in West Didsbury in Manchester. Despite the traumatic, life-changing injuries that Suzanne had clearly suffered, Margaret Coop did later tell the media that she felt that Suzanne might survive and even decided that if she did, she would go and visit her in hospital once she was feeling better. However, as medics worked frantically to save the poor child's life, Suzanne's struggle to stay awake became too difficult to bear. The doctor's best efforts to treat her were unsuccessful. Suzanne suffered multiple organ failure and began to very slowly drift away. Before losing consciousness for the final time, however, 
she was able to bravely tell the medics the names of her six assailants, as well as the address of where she believed she may have been held. After courageously providing this vital information, Suzanne slipped into a coma. By now, her family had been alerted and had rushed to be by her side. The extent of her burns was so severe that her mother and stepfather were unable to recognise her with complete certainty by sight alone. Her identity was only definitively confirmed by a partial fingerprint from her thumb, the only part of her hand that had not been destroyed by the fire. Suzanne's desperate fight for life in hospital lasted four long days, but the catastrophic extent of her injuries proved to be far too great. She died on the 18th of December in 1992, without ever regaining consciousness. She was just 16 years old. Four days, that is, that's horrendous. I know she would have had pain medication and everything, so I'm sh- I'm hoping that she wouldn't have been in pain, but that is a long time for that body to just try and try. Yeah, and I think I thought about pain management, and I thought, I'm sure they would have done everything they could have, but they, they can't completely take that pain away, probably, without killing her, so... um. I'm sure, very sadly, she would have been in in some discomfort and some pain, even though she was unconscious. After Suzanne's death, the lead pathologist determined that she had suffered 75-80% to burns, consistent with having had petrol thrown over her before being set alight, and that her chance of survival had been minimal from the outset. Her cause of death was attributed to the catastrophic internal damage that had ensued after being set ablaze. In response to the senseless tragedy, Manchester police launched a murder inquiry. Their tragic victim was a young and innocent child who had died in the most appalling circumstances imaginable. But who was she? As detectives began to put the pieces of the puzzle together, they unravelled a desperately sad story of an innocent but troubled young woman who had been searching for love in all of the wrong places. It was a gruesome tale of a vulnerable youth who was trying to find her place in the world but who had inadvertently wandered straight into the lion's den. Suzanne Jane Capper was born in Moston, a run-down suburb of Manchester, in 1976. She was the second daughter of her mother Elizabeth Capper, the first child being Suzanne's older sister Michelle. The early years of Suzanne's short life were turbulent and lacking in any kind of stability. She and Michelle never met their biological father, he departed the family before she was born and then stayed away for good and this put a tremendous strain on Suzanne's mother who struggled to adequately provide for her two daughters. Two years on and Suzanne's mother got remarried to a man named John Capper. By all accounts John was a good man and a much needed stable father figure in Suzanne's life. John would later describe Suzanne as a high-spirited and very well-mannered young girl who was always happy, saying that she had a lot of friends and craved love from everyone and anyone around her. Sadly for Suzanne especially, Elizabeth and John separated after 11 years together. The split was especially traumatic for Suzanne, who once again found herself without the strong paternal guidance that she so badly needed in life. It would also be the catalyst for the horrifying events that lay ahead. That must be really difficult as well for Elizabeth and John to kind of realise that something that they've done, which is never, you know, this isn't their fault, but you would then think, gosh, that's them being a catalyst or something. Like, that must be really difficult to then deal with as well, with the guilt of something that you couldn't have changed and didn't, you know, you shouldn't have changed, but that that's made a big difference. 11 years with this father figure and then to not have that after needing it before yeah that's that's really sad as well 
It's it's a difficult one though, isn't it? Because it could be that they had they stayed together for the sake of the children, that could have been uh, that could have been problematic for Suzanne exactly, and indeed for Michelle exactly. too. So you can't really win, and I certainly wouldn't blame them for breaking up. I wouldn't blame no. them for what went on to happen to Suzanne. I think it may have happened anyway. But I just mean like, yeah, that must be tough thinking back and thinking, oh, I wonder if, I wonder if. But of course, if if the relationship is not right, staying together for the sake of children is never the right thing. No, no. After the breakup, Susanna and Michelle were forced out of the family home when their mother could no longer support them. Michelle moved in with a local woman called Jean Powell, a family friend who lived close by and who had babysat the girls since they were young children. While Suzanne was left essentially homeless and ended up spending the following 18 months or so under the care of the local authorities, drifting between several care homes until she became old enough to strike out on her own. Suzanne was undeniably bright, but her progress at school was slow and marred by frequent and unexplained absences. It was later uncovered that Suzanne had gotten herself a paid office cleaning job and would often go off and make money rather than go to classes. Suzanne lived in several different home settings over the course of her short life, and when she was 15 she began sofa surfing, drifting sporadically between the homes of several friends and relatives. Despite the chaotic and unstable nature of Suzanne's turbulent life, she was always happy, kind and courteous to everyone she met. Her mother Elizabeth described her as a gentle and easily influenced girl, adding, She was fun-loving, but not boisterous. She was just like any other 16-year-old girl who just wanted to be out with her friends. Suzanne never once brought any problems home. She was always doing things for other people. She was always giving love and affection and never seemed interested in getting any love back. Which makes me feel really sad that she's got so much love to give. She's got such a big heart, but she doesn't really have the capacity within herself to welcome that in return and to love herself as well. But also it kind of says a lot about her that she didn't necessarily... She wasn't doing it for that reason either. She was just doing it because she's such a nice person. She's not doing it because she needs that validation or love in return. She's just doing it and shows what a special person she was. So it was this kindness and her deep need for love and human connection that made Suzanne so vulnerable. And her vulnerability was often ruthlessly exploited by her so-called friends and sometimes even family members who would reportedly take money from her and use her as an errand girl. Suzanne often shook this off with a smile and carried on as normal, but no matter how much loving kindness she poured out to everyone around her, there always seemed to be someone looking to take advantage of her, which we've seen before. We've seen in similar cases to this where somebody is just so loving and giving and it's exploited. That vulnerability is seized upon by ruthless people and exploited for their own gain. Yeah, so often. And it's always... It just is so heartbreaking because we've said we have covered a number of cases in a couple of episodes where we've looked at a few different cases and these people just taken advantage of and because they're vulnerable or they they've craved that love or affection or something. Um, yeah, just it's just so horrible, isn't it? It is. And it reminds me of uh, I don't think it was the first book that we reviewed for Patreon Book Club. It was called If You Tell by Greg Olson. And a lot of this episode, a lot of this case reminds me of that book. So um, a real dominant matriarch who 
exploited vulnerable young women and girls into her home to look after her children and then cruelly abuse them. It, it's not for the faint-hearted, but it's a, it's a brilliant read and it's beautifully written, but it's a brutal subject. So I can't recommend it enough. Um, but yeah, it always stayed with me. I think it was possibly the first. It might have been the first book we reviewed for book club. Anyway, at the age of 16, Suzanne found herself struggling to find a place to live when her mother once again refused to take her in. It was around this time that Suzanne became involved with a local woman named Jean Powell. So that's the same Jean Powell that Suzanne's Mm -hmm. sister Michelle had gone to live with. So yeah, Michelle had lived with Jean and her husband Glyn for several months in the aftermath of her mother and stepfather's split. And the three had become very close friends, actually. Eventually, however, Michelle did decide to move in with her boyfriend instead, largely because she was growing more and more uncomfortable with the goings-on and the evil people that would occasionally come to visit Jean's home. Gosh, that's quite a strong statement as well, evil people. That's not just like some horrible people or... Yeah, some kind of wayward people. And that's how they're sort of referred to really in this case quite a bit as evil people. Jean and Glynn's house, located at 97 Langworthy Road, was a hotspot for drug dealing, parties and sex. Amphetamines would be weighed out on the kitchen scales and stolen cars would be traded around the kitchen table. Glynn Powell was a career criminal who had convictions for burglary, theft and being drunk and disorderly. Jean had a violent reputation around Moston and most of the neighbourhood gave her, her husband and her home a wide berth. The evil people that Michelle Kappa had earlier referred to were a small group of Jean and Glynn's friends who spent nearly all their time at the property. 24-year-old Bernadette McNeely, a violent drug-addicted mother of three, was a regular visitor at the house, as well as local drug addicts 17-year-old Anthony Dudson and 26-year-old Geoffrey Lee. Clifford Pook was Jean's 18-year-old brother and had once been in a relationship with Suzanne. Glynn and Jean were amphetamine dealers and the heads of a local car theft ring. They had a very bad relationship with their neighbours and once reportedly even set a neighbour's washing on fire out of spite following a falling out. Honestly, this, I don't know why. I mean, there's so much worse to come, but this just really resonated with me because I know if I'd taken the time to put a load of washing on and then hang it out outside in the afternoon sun, if someone came along and set that on fire, I would be fucking livid. It's such like an invasion of your privacy as well, and it's just horrendous, so... Yeah. And it's such a petty thing to do. It's so petty, isn't it? But it would really bother me. Glynn and Jean's house was filthy, smelly and uncared for. Of course it was. There were just car seats placed around the house for people to sit on and there were industrial kitchen scales in the kitchen for weighing out drugs. It was certainly no place for children and it made for an extremely uncomfortable living environment. Unable to bear it, Michelle Kappa packed her things and left the house to move in with a boyfriend, as I said. However, before she left, she asked Jean and Glynn if Suzanne, who was struggling to find a place to live at the time, could take her place in the spare room. See, that really annoys me a little bit, because I'm kind of like, you're leaving and you're not happy with this place, but you're happy for your sister to come and live there. Like, that really frustrates me. I know, I, when I read it, I thought, Jesus, what did Suzanne do to you to fuck you off that you're going to let her jump in your grave? What literally would become her grave? Yeah. 
So Jean and Glyn agreed to let Suzanne move in and initially the pair struck up a close friendship when Suzanne, who adored kids and had a very maternal, nurturing nature, offered to help Jean look after three young children in exchange for her keep. This mutually beneficial arrangement ran smoothly for a short time. However, it wasn't long before relations in the house began to get strained. Several witnesses would later testify that both Glyn and Jean, Jean especially, gradually grew to despise Suzanne. Taking advantage of Suzanne's kind yet submissive nature, they used her as a skivvy. Suzanne was manipulated and intimidated by Jean and Glyn into doing all the household chores, as well as being responsible for almost around-the-clock childcare. Violence was no stranger at the property, and Jean used fear to bend the gentle Suzanne to her will. It didn't help that Jean and Glyn had a reputation around the town as violent drug dealers. Most people from within the local community were afraid of them and tended to avoid them wherever possible. It was clear that Suzanne was also terrified of them, but against her better judgement and with the most likely alternative being full-on homelessness, she opted to stay in the house and was forced to endure the ongoing torment of Glyn, Jean and the evil friends that her sister Michelle had been so afraid of. The dynamic in the house changed several times while Suzanne was staying there and things began to get more and more extreme and dangerous. At some point, Jean and Glyn separated, but they remained on good terms. Glyn continued to visit the house to see the kids, to sell drugs, and to conduct his criminal business as before. However, to fill in for Glyn, Jean allowed Bernadette McNeely to move into the property, so that was the 24-year-old drug-addicted mother of three, part of that evil gang, and almost immediately the place became essentially a drug den. Jean and Bernadette were weighing amphetamines in the kitchen, dealing them in the living room, selling stolen car parts and sleeping with a slew of people who came through the house for drugs, the most notable of which was 17-year-old Anthony Dudson, who began to visit the house almost daily and soon began having a sexual relationship with both Jean Powell and Bernadette McNeely, and then after some time he decided to take advantage of Suzanne and her need for love and he began having sex with her too. Oh my god, this is just horrific. This whole place just sounds Debauched. disgusting and horrendous. Doesn't it just? It's. I mean, I don't think I've done it justice, but can you re- imagine the scale of filth and depravity there? There would have been stunk in there. It would have stank. There would have been mountains of amphetamines in the kitchen. Kids running all around this property as well, probably touching the drugs. There would have been dirty nappies all over the place and none of it would have been cleaned for months or years. It was truly would have been a grotesque environment in which to live. In late 1992, Suzanne went to her mother's home after being badly beaten up by Jean and she begged to be allowed to move back home. However, her mother cruelly turned her away. She explained that she now had a new boyfriend and he simply wouldn't allow it. Terrified and dejected, Suzanne walked anxiously back to Jean's house. It's easy to wonder why Suzanne didn't just simply leave the house. After all, she was being physically, mentally and psychologically bullied by the very people who were supposed to be her friends. However, it's important to remember that before Suzanne became involved with the group at Jean's house, she'd had no human companionship other than from her own family. And in this squalid house on Langworthy Road, she found a source of human contact that for her was far too difficult to break, even though it was abusive. About a week after Suzanne had been turned away by her mother, she simply vanished. When her friends and family members tried to contact her, they were unable to figure out where she was. 
After being missing for almost a week, she was discovered naked on the side of that road, close to death, having apparently been burned alive. So it didn't take long, really. That is a quick time... Yeah, I was going to say, that's a short turnaround. Oh, God. Yeah. The police soon realised that Suzanne's last known location before going missing was at the address of Jean Powell, which was where Suzanne was understood to have been living. The name Jean Powell was alarming to the police for a far more fundamental reason, though. It was one of the names that Suzanne had given to the doctors before she'd lost consciousness. Miss Powell's address, 97 Langworthy Road, was also a perfect match for the one that Suzanne had provided when she'd been asked where she'd been kept captive. Suzanne had also given the medics an additional five names, so Glyn Powell, who was Jean's husband, Clifford Pook, that was her younger brother, Bernadette McNeely, so the 24-year-old drug-addicted mother of three, Geoffrey Lee and Anthony Dudson. So Anthony Dudson, I don't think we've heard about Geoffrey Lee yet, but Anthony Dudson oh, was a 17-year-old. Anthony old. Dudson's the guy banging all of them. Basically, yeah. It appeared Suzanne had been sadistically tortured to death by her own friends. Without hesitation, the lead detective dispatched local officers to go to Jean Powell's home and instructed them to arrest everyone that they found there. The police forcibly gained entry to the property and were greeted with unimaginable scenes. The house was a complete and utter mess. The living room was strewn with rubbish. There were stolen car seats along the walls in lieu of sofas. That's just so weird to me. I don't get that. I know. Why would you do that? Honestly, surely they could have got a second-hand sofa from somewhere or stolen one. Nick a sofa. Steal a sofa, guys. Come on. The six individuals that Suzanne had identified as a killer, as many of whom were in the house when the police arrived, were arrested on the spot. Now, this is going to get gruesome from here because a deep search of the home was carried out and several disturbing pieces of evidence were discovered that strongly indicated that Suzanne had been held there. All of her hair was discovered in the bin, as well as a pair of pliers that appeared to be stained with blood. But the most damning and horrifying of all discoveries were Suzanne's discarded teeth, which had apparently been kept as some kind of sick, macabre keepsake. The killers were so brazen that they hadn't bothered to even attempt to hide what they had done to Suzanne. Initially, the gang all denied any involvement and even laughed and joked amongst themselves as they were being arrested. All six of them were taken to the police station, separated and subjected to hours of questioning in which they all continued to vehemently deny any knowledge or involvement in Suzanne's killing. Unsurprisingly, there were dozens of inconsistencies and contradictions to all the gang's individual versions of events. They clearly hadn't taken time to corroborate their stories should the police ever come knocking and their laziness and lack of common sense was about to cost them dearly. It always is like just stupidity, isn't it, it comes down to... It is, and we kind of covered it a bit last week when, I can't even remember the case now, but the defendant said they couldn't remember anything, I think. Mm-hmm. And that real lazy defence of, well, I can't remember doing it, so therefore I didn't, or therefore I shouldn't be found guilty. It's just, it just never washes. Just try and come up with something better. Yeah, it's pathetic, yeah. It was Anthony Lee who first broke. As the detectives began to increase the intensity of their questioning, Lee's conscience began to get the better of him. After being urged by his father to tell the truth, Lee made a full confession, implicating himself and his five co-defendants in a brutal murder. Jean, Clifford and Bernadette also began to break under pressure, and eventually all three admitted the accusation of false imprisonment, but they continued to deny that they had killed Suzanne. Anthony Lee's version of events, however, would prove to be the most reliable, and under guidance from his father, he told the whole heartbreaking story which held nothing back. 
The story that Anthony Lee began to tell them was like something straight from a horror film. Even the most hardened of officers were moved to tears. According to Anthony, Suzanne was despised and regularly beaten and picked on by everyone in the house, including him. He himself didn't particularly like her and often joined his friends in their mistreatment of her, but he regularly had sex with her just because he could. Taking advantage of her vulnerability and her need for love and affection was just too easy for him. It was all a game. The problems arose when Jean and Bernadette, who were each having their own sexual relations with Anthony, found out that he was also sleeping with Suzanne. So this revelation immediately put Suzanne in the firing line as a love rival and their hatred for her intensified dramatically from that point onwards. Not their hatred for him or anything like that, just for I know, her. and he's a of fucking 17-year-old... A 17-year-old scrawny little fucker, and these are grown-ass women kind of fighting over him. It's deplorable. The tension in the house reached a deadly boiling point in December 1992, when the group accused Suzanne of stealing an expensive pink duffel coat. It didn't matter that they had no proof, nor did it matter that dozens of strangers had regularly visited the house every day to buy drugs and could have easily taken the coat themselves. All that mattered was that the coat was gone and Suzanne was the easiest to blame. To make matters worse, Jean, Bernadette, Glyn and Anthony had all become infected with pubic lice. Once again, it didn't matter that Anthony was having regular sex with Jean, Bernadette, Suzanne and God knows who else. It didn't matter that Glyn was also regularly still sleeping with Jean whilst also sleeping around with other women around Mostern. When Anthony discovered that he had crabs, he became extremely angry and decided that he must have contracted them from Suzanne. No further proof was needed. Of course it was Suzanne, of not course any of was, the yeah. others. Of, oh, for God's sake. Whilst these grievances, whether true or not, would appear insubstantial and trivial, the cumulative effect was about to put Suzanne even deeper into the firing line. The group's jealousy, hatred and contempt for her suddenly morphed into something much more sinister, hostile and deadly. Jean, Bernadette, Glyn and Anthony all had to shave off their pubic hair to rid themselves of crabs. They were furious and together they began to plan a brutal and deadly revenge on their despised housemate. On the 7th of December in 1992, Suzanne was visiting her former stepdad John Capper when the gang called at the house to tell her that a guy who she fancied was there and was waiting to see her. Predictably, Suzanne eagerly rushed to the house hoping to see her crush. However, the boy she liked wasn't there waiting for her. Instead, she wandered straight into a violent ambush. Once inside, the group pounced on Suzanne and began savagely beating her. After knocking her to the ground under a hail of vicious kicks and punches, Suzanne was pinned to the floor while Glyn cruelly shaved her hair. I think sometimes that can be like quite a, a vicious way of reducing someone as well. So they're like not female and feminine and stuff. That's quite a like symbolic thing isn't it it's like a power a power thing as well because why do you need to but you're doing that to be nasty yeah it was about removing any sense of self or identity and that's Mm -hmm. why it was done to prisoners of war decades ago to do the same thing to them and it was a it's a way of controlling people Glynn also forced Suzanne to shave her genitals and this was as a form of deranged revenge for allegedly being the cause of the pubic lice that had infested the group. Once finished, he demanded that she sweep up all of the hair and throw it in the bin and it was still there when officers came knocking. Afterwards, Glynn placed a plastic bag over her head and amused himself by pushing her to the very brink of total suffocation before taking the bag off her head and allowing her to breathe again, only to repeat the twisted process over and over again. 
When he got bored of this weird asphyxiation game, Glyn marched a now hysterical and terrified Susanna around the flat and encouraged everyone else to punch her in the head. Laughing, cheering and shouting abusive slurs, the gang took turns hitting her with belt buckles and large ornamental wooden spoons. The beating was so severe that Suzanne suffered serious nerve damage, which caused one of her arms to hang uselessly by her side for the rest of her imprisonment. Following the beating, which lasted for several agonising hours, a seriously injured Suzanne was locked in a cupboard under the stairs. In unbearable pain and terrified beyond belief, Suzanne's loud, agonised screams from inside the cupboard reverberated throughout the entire house, which caused Jean and Bernadette's children to become upset. I kind of forget that the children are there as well. Like, that's... I know. That, I'd forgotten that element, and then, like, there's children in this house. Witnessing all of this. To remedy the problem of Suzanne's pain screams, the gang moved her to Bernadette's other unoccupied home, which was just a few doors down the street. Once here, the sadistic gang's relentless, heartless and cruel campaign of torture and depravity only increased with greater intensity. And I think here we should probably give a bit of a warning and just say if people can't, like, this is horrendous enough. This case is one of the ones that, like, you just, it's just horrendous. And I think maybe skip five minutes if you need to, like, forward, Mm. if you can't listen to descriptions of torture, if that makes sense, because... I know where this is going and I kind of don't want you to describe it. Like, it, it's horrendous mm. and I know this case, so I don't know. Yeah, we rarely give warnings, but I think it's, it's needed in this case in mm. terms of what we're about to cover. Suzanne was stripped naked and shackled spread-eagled to an upturned bed with chains and robes. She had socks stuffed in her mouth to muffle her pained screams. Over the following five long, painful and nightmarish days, Suzanne was subjected to a catalogue of depraved torture methods that would turn the stomachs of even the most accomplished of psychopaths. Her two front teeth were pulled out with pliers by Jean's younger brother, Clifford Pook, and another tooth was snapped in half, leaving the nerve endings exposed. She was injected with amphetamines and burned on the face and body with cigarettes. It's just almost too much to bear isn't it just talking about it so what got me was obviously they've used pliers to pull out two of Suzanne's teeth but they've snapped one in half leaving the nerve endings exposed and we Mm -hmm. all know how severe tooth pain is but with such butchery I, I can't I can't even begin to imagine the pain that she would have been in it would have actually started to feel like an out of body experience for her I think and I hope Yeah, this whole case just, I, yeah, I just hate it. Suzanne was denied any access to the bathroom, so before long she was covered in her own urine and excrement. After the stench of Suzanne lying in her own faeces became too unbearable, she was shoved into a bathtub filled with concentrated disinfectant and scrubbed with a yard brush until her skin came off. At random intervals throughout the torture and abuse, Suzanne was subjected to a tape of Chucky from the horror movie Child's Play, repeating, I'm Chucky, wanna play, as well as rave music played through powerful headphones at maximum volume. This depraved and relentless torture continued for days, and all members of the gang took a turn in Suzanne's endless torment. Possibly the most heartbreaking part about Suzanne's story is that there was at least one golden opportunity for her to be rescued. This is just possibly the, like, the rest of it is so horrific, but this makes you just so angry. Like, I don't know, I 
all of it's horrendous but this is rage inducing yeah and it can't i mean it's it's different but it reminded me a bit of the murder of debbie lindsley on the train that was going into victoria but the chance potentially yeah a passenger had heard her screams and could have pulled the cord which would have been enough to potentially save debbie's life and they didn't do it or at least catch her killer even if it didn't save her life or yeah something he wouldn't have been able to get off a train that had stopped mid-track Two or three days into Suzanne's captivity, an 18-year-old man named David Hill was asked to sit in at the house while several members of the gang went out. Hill had no idea that Suzanne was being held there at first, and he couldn't understand why he was being asked to babysit what was an empty house. As he sat patiently in the living room, though, he heard Anthony Dudson from the back room shout, Shut up, you slag. When Dudson emerged, Hill asked him what was going on. Anthony laughed and took him through to the back room to show him what they'd done to Suzanne. Hill could clearly see evidence of torture and was told that he was being asked to babysit at the house to prevent her from escaping whilst they were out. Hill was later left alone with Suzanne, but astonishingly, he didn't free her. Speaking later to the police, he said, She asked me if I could help, but I told her I couldn't. I asked her who she was. She said her name was Suzanne. She asked me if I could untie her. I said I couldn't do anything. Hill later claimed that he was too afraid of the gang to intervene, saying, I thought they would batter me. If I'd said anything, they'd all have got me, wouldn't they? I didn't know what to do. I was too shocked to do anything. I kind of a little bit get it, but I'm still pissed as fuck with him. (laughs) Yeah, I think I would probably echo that. I don't think I could put it better myself. The gang returned to the house not long after this, and Hill left the property. He could have so easily raised the alarm, but he simply didn't. And I think, I do think, I mean, I do, like we said, do get it, but he could have raised the alarm. Police would have been involved, and they would have all gone to prison for a long time, so he would have been safe. So the fact that he didn't free her meant that Suzanne's nightmare would continue uninterrupted for several more days. During the captivity, Geoffrey Lee and Anthony Dudson also helped Suzanne's sister's boyfriend, Paul Barlow, to repair his car, all the while knowing full well that Suzanne was being held and tortured in the house. So Barlow later told the media, They could have told me there and then, the door would have been kicked down and I would have got Suzanne out. I didn't think they were capable of such savagery. Now all I want is ten minutes alone with them in that back room. So he says he would have done something about it. I do believe him, but obviously they probably knew that and therefore didn't tell him. I bet they absolutely reveled in doing stuff with his car and potentially him saying like, oh, I haven't seen um, like my girlfriend's sister or like, I bet they really reveled in that, that knowledge that they knew what had happened to her. And even if he didn't even talk about her or anything, they would have been absolutely loving that, the horrific people. You can... You can imagine them saying, oh, she's, she must be tied up at the minute and sniggering to themselves, yeah. Four agonising days after Suzanne had been kidnapped, Bernadette McNeely heard a rumour that Suzanne's mother was asking around after her and that she was considering reporting her to the police as a missing person. Knowing it was only a matter of time before the police started looking for Suzanne, the gang callously decided that the only sensible thing to do would be to kill her and dispose of her as soon as possible. However, true to their sadistic and despicable natures, they all agreed that she deserved to die in the most painful way possible. In the early morning hours of December 14th, Suzanne was forced into the boot of a Fiat Panda car that the gang had stolen. 
They drove her to a remote spot of woodland near Stockport where she was forced out of the car and shoved down an embankment, rolling through dank leaves and bramble with thorns cutting her bare feet. Bernadette poured petrol over the terrified teenager and Glyn set her alight. According to Anthony, Suzanne screamed as she was engulfed in flames. And I, I just, again, it's so obvious to say, but I, we, I'm sure we are all picturing this scene unfold in our own head. And I can see it, and I can see a naked Suzanne being doused in petrol, beaten black and blue, unable to resist or run away. And then Glyn throwing a match at her and setting her on fire and her screaming in agony. Mm-hmm. It's just an appalling scene to play out and I'm sorry that I'm doing it. Yeah. Presuming that Suzanne was dead, they left the scene laughing and singing Burn Baby Burn, Disco Inferno, the 1978 track by the Tramps, which was fitting because they're fucking Tramps. The only thing more infuriating about their barbaric cruelty was their brazen arrogance and stupidity. They simply assumed that Suzanne's body would be destroyed by the fire and were not in any way worried that they would be caught because they're just so fucking thick. However, Suzanne didn't die as quickly and anonymously as the gang had hoped. Somehow she managed to survive that brutal attack. She staggered up that embankment and was found by Barry Sutcliffe, who was driving to work. Barry didn't need to be told what had happened to Suzanne. It was clear from the skin hanging from her battered body that she'd been set on fire. And it was actually ascertained later on that she'd suffered 80% burns to her body. I think the pathologist in the initial autopsy said it was 75 to 80%, but it was 80%. Anthony Dudson's gut-wrenching confession left the police officers feeling numb, sad, and questioning everything they thought they knew about humanity. All six members of the gang were assessed by criminal psychologists and found to be completely sane. They knew exactly what they were doing, they knew exactly how much agonising pain they were causing, but they did it anyway, and it all came down to a stolen duffel coat and a curable STI that Suzanne didn't even fucking pass on. Eventually, all members of the gang made full confessions. Not that it mattered, the evidence against them was so overwhelming that there was barely even a need for an investigation. In late December 1992, Jean Powell, Glyn Powell, Bernadette McNeely, Geoffrey Lee, Anthony Dudson and Clifford Pook were all charged with the kidnapping, false imprisonment, torture and murder of Suzanne Kappa. Their trials commenced on the 16th of November in 1993 and lasted 22 days. All six pleaded not guilty to murder and in their testimonies, each defendant tried to minimise their own individual involvements in the crime and pass the bulk of the responsibility to someone else. So of they did admit they fucking everything did. that happened, but they obviously blamed each other for the murder. So they yeah, did they'd be like, well, murder. I only did this and I only did that. Absolutely disgusting. The jury was shown overwhelming forensic evidence that proved beyond doubt that Suzanne was held against her will and slowly and cruelly tortured to death before being executed. The pathologist also testified, telling the court the full horrific extent of the damage that was done to Suzanne during her painful ordeal. The jury began their deliberations on the 16th of December in 1993, and they took 9 hours and 52 minutes to reach their verdicts. Bernadette McNeely was found guilty of murder, grievous bodily harm and false imprisonment, and she was sentenced to life imprisonment with a minimum tariff of 25 years. Jean and Glyn Powell were both found guilty of murder, conspiracy to cause grievous bodily harm and false imprisonment and they were each sentenced to life imprisonment again with a minimum tariff of 25 years. 
Anthony Dudson was found guilty of murder, conspiracy to cause grievous bodily harm and false imprisonment. He was detained indefinitely with a minimum tariff of 18 years. That's possibly because he was 17 at the time, so technically a child. Yeah. Jeffrey Lee and Clifford Pook pleaded guilty to false imprisonment and received 12 years and 15 years in prison respectively. Both were acquitted of murder on the grounds that they were not in the car that drove Suzanne to her death. As the sentences were announced, two jurors began to cry and there were cheers from the public gallery, which was filled with Suzanne's friends and family members. After passing the sentences, the judge said, Each of you has been convicted on clear evidence of murder, which was as appalling a murder as is possible to imagine. Speaking outside the court after the trial, Suzanne's mother Elizabeth said, Suzanne was very forgiving, but she was also a girl who would try to sort out her problems on her own. That's what she did in the end. She survived her ordeal long enough to name every single one of them. I mean, I get that. And it is it is kind of highlighting the courageousness of Suzanne in this. But I do blame Elizabeth for some of this, for having a dysfunctional home life. Like not letting her come back because your new boyfriend doesn't want your daughter to come back. That makes me so angry. In the aftermath of the sentencing, questions were raised about what could have possibly driven six certifiably sane individuals to commit such a cruel and heinous crime. Several psychologists spoke to the media and theorised that the shocking actions of Suzanne's killers could be attributed to a type of behaviour known as herd mentality. That's also often referred to as mob mentality, pack mentality or group think which is characterised as the dependency for people's behaviour or beliefs to conform to those of the group to which they belong. Herd-like behaviour can often be observed at a large-scale demonstration or riots, strikes, religious gatherings, sporting events and outbreaks of mob violence. We kind of looked at that a little bit last week as well with the kind of gang mentality of the people who attacked Sophie and Robert and I think that we've seen that a few times in other cases as well where potentially a single person wouldn't have done this, but as a group, they just get caught up in, in it and the excitement of what they're doing and the craziness, I guess, maybe. I, I mean, this is more than just a split second. I'm going to join it and this is on another level. But yeah, um, we've seen that quite a few times, haven't we? Yeah. And it's, it's a bit like, you know, how some, some people can really bring out the best in you. You just happen to meet a particular person in the course of your life, become friends or whatever. And they're a really good kind of influence on you. The complete opposite can happen. And I wonder with this group of six people, they were, they all just, fate just brought them together and they were all the wrong people and they all had an influence. So it wasn't just group mentality. It was the the individuals involved in that group. When they came together, it was just explosive. So had you taken one particular individual out of that group and replaced them with somebody else, this might not have happened. Others blamed the crime on portrayals of violence in certain movies and television programmes that were popular around this time. So two months after Suzanne was killed, as we said, James Bolger was kidnapped in broad daylight by two 10-year-old boys who then took him down to some isolated railway tracks and tortured him to death. And in both cases, the perpetrators made references to Chucky the demon-possessed doll in the horror movie Child's Play. And such a troubling coincidence was impossible to ignore and it prompted the British public to question whether exposure to violent movies like that would have a damaging impact on certain people in society, particularly vulnerable 
youngsters or people that were just more impressionable. And I do believe that. I really do think that um, that is possible. There has never been any definitive proof of a link between the consumption of violent movies and murderous and or sadistic behaviour. And the whole argument was eventually cast aside and nothing more was kind of um, placed on it. They just kind of said it was just all about moral panic. I think there's something in it. I think that there has to be something in it, but some people would watch it and not continue on with that path. And then other people would watch it and continue on with a path of something sadistic within them. So, but I think, yeah, there has to be something in it. If you're exposed to stuff at a young age, you're going to be more, um, I don't know what, sanitized to it. Is that the right word? Like if you've, if you're exposed to it from a young age, you may be more, no, desensitized. That's what I'm thinking of. Yeah, and also also at an impressionable age when you're forming opinions and really trying to understand how the world works and what's right and wrong. Some people do get really sucked into it, don't mm-hmm. they? The same with video games. Um, I'm not going to go off on one on it all, but it was taken seriously for a time because uh, both the natural, uh, natural Born Killers and Reservoir Dogs, uh, the release of both of those films was delayed in light of these tragedies. Today, all of Suzanne's killers have now served their time and have been released from jail. Jeffrey Lee was released in 1998 and Clifford Pook in 2001. Anthony Dudson was released in 2013 and Bernadette McNeely was paroled in 2015 for good behaviour. Fuck me, she knew how to play the game. Jean and Glyn Powell were released in 2014 and 2018 respectively and they're now divorced. And again, we said it last week, but I always wonder what truly becomes of these people so you've got somebody like well jeffrey lee and clifford pook who were less involved in this they've been out of prison for 21 years now unless they've been back in for other stuff it's a long time isn't it maybe they have been able to rehabilitate themselves and integrate back into society i think you just kind of have to really hope that they have otherwise you kind of drive yourself mad worrying wouldn't you yeah i think you're right So, um, yeah, a truly, truly tragic case and our thoughts still remain 31 years on with Suzanne Kapper and and her family and friends. And she just sounded like such a lovely girl um, who just had this troubled life and um, Mm. there was a sense of inevitability about this for sure. Get in touch in all the usual ways. Let us know your thoughts on this case. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook. Um, also, if you do want to support us via Patreon, then you just need to go to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. We have so much stuff going on over there and your support is so appreciated. We're currently reading Bethan and Chris Clark's book, The New Millennium Serial Killer for Book Club. So we're going to be meeting at uh, towards the end of February to discuss that. And we've just released this week bonus episode number 40, which was all about the murder of former EastEnders actress Gemma McCluskey. Another terrible, tragic tale. So, um, yeah, if you want to get your hands on all of that and if you want to get involved in these winter months in things like our book club, and uh, have something that kind of forces you to read on a regular basis, then, yeah, check it out. Patreon.com slash Podcast. We will see you next week for another case. Bye. Bye.